1: Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk.
0: Welcome back. It is 9.33. It is Friday the 15th. Of September, And of course, we use the news through 12 and me, Clarence uh, 930 just after that news headlines is reserved for the Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith uh, joins us on the line again from London to answer your questions. You know how it works and plenty of questions in as we welcome the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. Great to have you back, Chris.
1: Hi, Clarence. You. Wasn't it fun last week uh, when we got together? It was amazing to see you and, and, and really nice of Leicester to pop in as well. My two favourite guys in Cape Town.
0: Listen, we we thoroughly enjoyed that interaction and we're hoping that there's gonna be demand for your mind in these parts so we can have more <laughs> of them. <laughs> I had to run that night, but uh, I want to do a whole night with you one night. Yeah, well, uh, the really after good...
1: party was good. I must admit, yeah. <laughs> just the three of us.
0: Yeah, kind of short lived, kind of short lived. Yeah. My wife did read me the riot act thereafter. Did I get you uh, I into was...
1: trouble because I because I, I, I interrupted your phone call and I started sort of saying things uh, to her on the phone? And did did you get into trouble for that?
0: Actually, that was a get-out-of-jail-free card. That oh, introduction okay, saved the day. Uh, yeah, so the tongue lashing wasn't uh, <laughs> wasn't very significant because she got to speak with a naked scientist. <laughs> I have no doubt, Chris. She listens to the show every Friday. She's fascinated with your mind, and sometimes she even wades in with some questions. So <laughs> that's uh Wendy's probably listening and probably going to throw a question at us. But let's get to the questions, and I think some of the questions... Yeah, one question relates to World Cup. It came in first today and it reads Doctor Chris Smith, on the change of rugby jerseys during World Cup, which colours can a colour blind person not see or see?
1: Good question. And the answer is that colour blindness, the most common form of colour blindness, which you see in men, because it's, it's actually X linked, what that means is the genes that are affected are on the X chromosome. And because men have only one X chromosome, whereas women have two copies of the X chromosome, this, this means that women have a backup copy of the genes. So if something goes wrong on one X chromosome, and you've still got the other one, then in a majority or in a proportion of the cells, that gene, the correct form, will be working and therefore there isn't a clinical problem. But in men, there isn't that backup copy. So if a person inherits that X chromosome with the genes that are not working, then that person will be affected. And chiefly, it's what's called the red-green photoreceptors which are affected. In the retina, the back of the eye, which is the sheet of tissue that turns light waves into brain waves, you have a Different population or a mixed population of color sensitive cells called cones. And these make pigments, and those pigments are sensitive to different colors in the rainbow. And there are cones which are really sensitive to red. Cones that are really sensitive to green and then cones that are really sensitive at the blue end of the spectrum. But they all overlap a bit with the exception of the red and the blue. And this means that the eye and the brain can discriminate different colours by looking at the relative activity of these cone populations. So a light which activates just the red is probably red. A light that activates... A lot of green, some red and a bit of blue is probably green. If you have a gene which doesn't make the right pigment, which is what colour blindness is in some cases, you can therefore fail to make a cone population that can respond to the right colour so that you can discriminate those colours at the red-green end of the spectrum. So therefore colours which are red-green or that end of the spectrum are harder to discriminate for people who are colourblind. And that's the basis of those colourblindness tests. When you show people a picture and there will be different coloured dots on the page and there's usually a number or a letter hidden in the coloured dots because a colourblind person cannot discriminate those subtly different red or green blobs on the page they will not see any particular figure or or letter written there and a person who can discriminate will see that and that's how we tell so yes there are certain colors of shirts and jerseys which do make it harder for people who have colour blindness to discriminate both uh, from their own side but also uh, just in general and and they they will be colors which are towards the red green end of the spectrum
0: then we have a question morning dr smith How are we able to learn so much about planets that we haven't even been to, such as mass, weather, atmosphere, water? Thanks, Russ.
1: Hi, Russ. Well, this is really pertinent this week, actually, Russ, because there was a paper that's just come out from the University of Cambridge by Niku Madhusudan and his colleagues. And they've been using the James Webb Space Telescope to look at a planet which is hundreds of, well, yeah, about 700 trillion miles away, or 120 light years to put it a different way. So this is, in cosmic terms, just around the corner, but a very long way away from Earth. And this planet orbits a distant star. It's called K218. The planet itself is called K218b. Astronomers are an imaginative bunch. And the amazing power of these telescopes now means that you can spot the planet is there around this distant star. And you do this by what's called the transit method. So as the planet orbits its star and goes in front of the star, so it's between us and the star, the starlight changes in its intensity just very subtly. And the telescopes are so sensitive that they can see that. And because you can see how often that's happening, you can work out roughly roughly. how far away from the parent star that planet's orbiting and by looking at how much the planet bends the light coming from the parent star this is down to its mass of course that tells you how big it is so we can learn a huge amount about distant stars without going there and the really amazing thing about the James Webb Space Telescope is it is now so powerful you can use it to see the atmosphere around distant planets because you can do the science of spectroscopy where when that planet goes in front of its parent star, we are seeing the light coming from the star through the atmosphere of the planet and then to us. And because there's Robert Bunsen, who invented the Bunsen burner, discovered, we also can use the colour of light to tell what something is made of. Because all different chemicals both emit and absorb light at different colours. So if we look at the change in the starlight composition as the planet goes across, you can therefore say, well, these chemicals or these colours of light disappeared when the planet was in the way or the atmosphere of the planet was in the way and therefore we can infer that those chemicals must be present in the atmosphere of that planet and that's what astronomers are now able to do and with this discovery written up this week of K218b this planet they've been looking at it's very exciting because what they think they've got there is a planet uh, might be about 10 times bigger than the Earth it's called a sub-Neptune because it's, it's extremely big but not as big as something like Neptune, it's probably a water world, there was the signature of water Detected in previous studies on this planet. In the atmosphere, which is probably rich in hydrogen, there are also traces of methane and carbon dioxide, two carbon species which are potentially therefore able to be involved in life processes. And there's even the tantalizing possibility of another chemical called methyl disulfide. And uh, and this, DMS, uh, dimethyl sulfide rather, this chemical is a hallmark on Earth of life and so if it is there it's very exciting because it means there might be life chemistry on this distant planet but we don't know yet it needs confirm it needs confirming many many times over to make sure we're absolutely sure of that.
0: Sarah in Bergfleet good morning go ahead for the Naked Scientist. Good morning um I'd just like to ask the Naked Scientist
1: I have a bird a water feeder that I feed with sugar water and I always put a red you know, food dye into it, and it's right outside my bedroom window, so it's, I can see it every morning. And one morning, I woke up, and it was absolutely clear; all the red had disappeared. And I just want to understand this phenomenon. Why do you put the dye in there
0: to attract the birds?
1: Oh, I see, because and that works, does it? You notice that when you put the red in there, they're much more likely to come.
0: Well, I suppose I've always done it, so um, you know, I, I've never tried that
1: experiment so yeah but it's just strange it was red 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 for you know a week and then i woke up one morning and it was completely clear all the dye had disappeared i presume it's a food dye that you were putting in there yes yeah the reason for asking this is that food dyes are safe dyes because obviously we can eat them but many of them are based on vegetable matter or plant matter they come from nature And they're safe because plants make them, we can easily degrade them, and they don't cause any kind of of health threat. And that would be good for the birds as well. And I don't know, birds do have very good uh, colour vision. So it may well be that the birds can see that red and and will be drawn to it. On the other hand, it might put them off because some colours do deter wildlife. But the fact they're vegetable dyes means that most of these chemicals are really sensitive to changes in pH And indicators, you can do this yourself, if you make a mixture of um, red cabbage and water the red cabbage dye will come out and into the water. And if you change the pH of the water with some acid or some alkali, you will see that the dye changes colour quite dramatically. So my number one speculation, if you see something that changes colour, apart from obviously it rained and you didn't realise it flooded over your birdbath and washed all the red away, the other possibility is that something changed the pH of the water and that changed the dye composition or its chemical behaviour. The other possibility um, being that uh, it got... Bleached by sunshine, but if you've used the same dye for a really long time and then it suddenly did this, it would be more likely that something changed in the composition of the water. As I say, it diluted enormously, or something changed in the pH and that made the the dye change color.
0: Let's go to Barris in Bloberg. Barris, go ahead for the naked saint. Morning, Morning, Yeah, I'm just curious now. I flew back to Cape Town last night and when we were taking off, I felt, you know, when you take off, you felt like you pushed back into a chair. But once we're up in the air, that seems to be cancelled out. And we obviously, thrust is always there from takeoff and in flight. So what cancels that feeling of not being pushed back into your chair?
1: Hi, Barris. We feel a force when we are changing velocity. And when you're sitting in your aircraft seat, when you are at rest, the plane isn't moving, then there's no force acting on you to accelerate you down the runway. But as soon as the plane starts to take off, it's gaining velocity, it's going faster and faster. This means that the plane's engines are doing work against the plane, and you're sitting in the plane, so therefore they're doing work against you. You have inertia, because you have mass, so your body wants to stay at the same speed unless some external force accelerates you. That was one of Isaac Newton's laws. So when you're sitting in the plane, it's accelerating, so therefore it's accelerating you, and you feel the the part of the plane that's accelerating you, pushing on you. You feel you're being pushed back in your seat. Actually, it's your seat pushing into you that makes you feel like that and accelerating you. But once you reach a constant velocity, so the plane is now at cruising velocity, it's cruising along at a a constant speed, it is doing work to combat the losses the friction of the air that it's pushing out of the way to fly along. But in all other respects, nothing is changing. You're not feeling a net acceleration in any direction. Your velocity is constant, therefore you don't feel that force acting on you because you and the plane are both moving along at a constant speed.
0: Thank you for the question, Barris. Um... Question for the Naked Scientist. I attend mosque today at midday. I would like to know if the cell phone signals affect us as we are about 1,000 people in one space, close together, all our phones on silent. Abdul with that
1: question. Well, this has been looked at very, very thoroughly over a long period of time. And it's really the first time we've had the opportunity to do an experiment naturally where we have really good data that is objective, because what cell phone companies have is a record of every time you're on the phone and how long for. And as people have got a phone in their hand, when they're using a phone, their dose of radiation is going to be far greater than incidental radiation from the environment. And obviously, where there might be an occupational or exposure risk of something like this, people have to be really, really sure that there isn't any evidence of harm. So what people have done is to marry up the exposure of populations – Billions of people, effectively, because mobile phones outnumber people on the planet now. And they've looked at the exposure of people to mobile phone signals and they've looked at whether there's any correlation between those exposures and any disease rates. Because one of the criteria for causation, if something causes something to happen, one of the so-called Bradford Hill criteria should be that there's a dose dependent relationship the more of something that's present the more of the thing it causes to happen you should see therefore as mobile phone rates of use increase disease rates of anything that's caused by mobile phone radiation should also increase in step and at the moment, there is no evidence for any such association, at least in this time time slice that we've looked at. It may be that there is an effect. It may be that it's a subtle effect. Therefore, it takes a very long time and a big dose to get any effect. And so maybe we haven't looked hard enough for long enough. But given that billions of people's worth of data have been analysed now over long periods of time, then it seems reasonable that there's no grounds at the moment for overt concern for the levels of exposure we've had so far that said that we're changing the way we use mobile devices we're changing the ubiquity of mobile devices we're changing the sorts of radiation into the 5g regime that some of these devices are putting out and that we're therefore exposed to therefore we have to keep looking but meanwhile biochemically is it plausible that mobile phones could cause some kind of harm well the argument is that no, they shouldn't because they're using similar sorts of signals to home Wi-Fi and to the signals that come from the microwave oven in your kitchen. They're microwave signals. And these signals don't have enough energy in the waves to do damage to the bonds in chemicals and therefore break up our dna that's not to say that they can't have physiological effects on the body but we don't think that they can have a cancer causing effect in the same way that say ultraviolet rays from the sun or x-rays or gamma rays from from a nuclear bomb might have but nevertheless people are continuing to study this to make sure that there isn't a health harm at the moment we don't have any evidence that there is
0: another question that came in early this morning uh, what causes testicular torsion And how common is it except for accidental trauma? Is there a way to prevent it or act uh, the moment you are experiencing one without the need to have an emergency? Surgery, that's KK in Kamspey
1: with a question. Hi KK, Um, when I first did uh, medicine my first job was in surgery and uh, and I had a couple of kids that um, not the same time thank goodness who had this happen to them. It's common enough that most doctors will see a case or a suspected case of this when they're doing their surgery jobs in their working lifetime and what happens with a testicular torsion is that the testes which hang down in the scrotum and the, the reason that they do that is to produce a lower than body temperature because sperm is manufactured grows best at slightly lower temperatures than body temperature so by placing the testes outside the body while it does expose them to potential harm it means that the efficiency of sperm production is much higher and therefore you're more likely to have good fertility but because the testes by virtue of that anatomy have to dangle down in the scrotum there is the possibility that a bit like if you imagine a weight on a string it could spin and coil up sometimes the testis can actually twist on the cord that carries the sperm in and out of the testis and also the blood supply that comes in and out and when that happens sometimes it can twist round, and it will pinch off the initially the vein that's draining blood out of the testis and this means that blood can get in but not out and this causes swelling and inflammation and once that happens it's much, much, much harder to get it to untwist again. It's a medical emergency because if it's not dealt with promptly it will cause the testis to die because it will not get adequate blood and therefore adequate oxygen supply and and it's therefore a medical emergency and must be dealt with quickly. Thankfully it can be sorted out and it can be rapidly diagnosed. It's it's usually obvious what's going on, and we're usually pretty good at spotting when this has happened. It usually happens to younger children, and when it happens, a prompt surgery to open things up, small incision, and you just. Un- unwind the twisted testis and the doctor will usually put a stitch in to hold it to the surrounding tissue so that it doesn't do it again because if it's happened once the chances are your anatomy might mean that you're more likely or more prone to it happening so you put that stitch in to hold it so it doesn't actually do it again
0: okay um we've got a voice noted too let's take a listen uh this is a question for the naked scientist good morning Clarence and yeah to the good uh, doctor there. Um, I would just like to find out what is the best way to keep rats or mice away from your car. I have two dogs but the dogs are eating at my car trying to get to these rats and uh, mice. I don't have an enclosed uh, carport Um, And I was forced to put a gate in front of the car so that the dogs cannot get to the car and start chewing on it. So yeah, so what other homemade remedies is there to uh, deter these rodents To come and infest my
1: car have a good show bye-bye i so can identify with this because when i first moved to the house i now live in we decided we'd have a christmas tree at christmas time obviously uh, a nice one to celebrate moving into this new house and my wife went to get the christmas tree in her car and then about several months after this started to notice funny things happening with the electric system in the car and eventually all of the electric system failed and all the lights were going on and funny times and it just just wouldn't work properly. And when she took it to the garage and they opened things up, they found that something had eaten most of the wiring loom in the car. And we started setting traps because we suspected that there was this was had to be rodents and we caught rats and uh, the, 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 the most likely explanation is that there was a family of young rats living in this Christmas tree that uh, my wife had bundled into the back of the car and then she had unwittingly released them into the car when she parked the car in the driveway and didn't immediately unload the Christmas tree. So, number one piece of advice, don't get a Christmas tree that's been outside that might have a family of rats in it or check that there aren't rats living in your Christmas tree before you transport them home in your car. The rodents will be drawn to cars Because people often eat in cars, so there's often food and other junk in there, especially if you've got kids, and they like that, because it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet for mice and rats. So try to avoid making your car attractive in that respect. They also like the fact that there are lots of nooks and crannies that make great places for nests. Air filters, they love those. They'll go in the air filter if they can, because it's nice and cocooned and warm and enclosed and safe, and there's lots of things to chew up to turn into rodent bedding. But there are lots of other nice places they can hide as well. So really... The best thing to do is to try to avoid getting them in there in the first place. As I say, don't make the car attractive to them. You can uh, put traps in the car, obviously, if you think there might be some in there, putting them under the bonnet or uh, under the um seats or something make sure you don't put your feet or hands under there without remembering to remove them first if you think there might be an infestation but it is a perennial problem especially in people who live in the countryside or out in the back of beyond because there are lots of rats there and they will make a beeline for anything that they think will turn them a free meal and a safe place to sleep
0: we got another voice note in we're gonna have to edit it joe it's just too long uh let's let's play that one hi there it's david here i have a question for the scientist um, and basically, it's about our history um, as hominids, as homo sapiens. Uh, I just want to get his opinion if, um, if there's w- around this observation. Um, anthropologists normally compare us to other animal forms um, and zoological groups. Um, and the history of us hominids is that our, our primitive initial type differentiated anatomically as it spread out over the globe. And those anatomical differences were influenced by geography and climate, hence the varieties of humans and different races coming into existence. I'm not quite certain if there's a question in that little piece that Joe has edited, Uh, but if you can make sense of that, Dr. Smith.
1: Well, the, the thing we do have is a rich fossil record and the current understanding we have based on that fossil record, and one is always cautious because, of course, you can never say never in medicine and science because... There may always be the exception that, that disproves your rule. But the evidence we have based on a range of different lines of, of investigation is that anatomically modern humans and the other spin-offs, like Neanderthals, originated in Africa. And those that's based on both genetic and other um, sort of anthropological evidence. And that there was then a radiation from Africa out across the rest of the world. And then people formed communities in particular parts of the world in areas that were good to live in but there was an element of population bottlenecking in those places For various reasons it could have been constraints of the geography it could have been because of exigencies in the weather or the environment that periodically came along and culled lots of people and selected for certain genetic makeups in those particular geographies and that enabled us or concentrated genes that would have led to the elaboration of certain characteristics and so we end up with the Until modern travel and people become much more mobile again, we end up with the sort of geographical distribution of the way we look and the way we tend to be around the different parts of the world and we can begin to piece back together by looking at how genetically related populations are even the bacteria that we carry in our stomachs helicobacter pylori if you look at the genetic makeup of this it can tell you indirectly who went where and when so we've got a reasonably rich record now of where life uh, as an anatomically modern human began perhaps about 50 to a hundred thousand years ago in africa how those people then move out of africa and how they populate different parts of the world at different times and how things like changing climate opens up and then restricts access to different geographies which probably is what drove people to different places at different timelines across our evolutionary history. But one almost must keep an open mind because at the end of the day we are making huge interpretations from small numbers of fossils and small amounts of remains and we're making population-level judgments from tiny amounts of data. So we're very, very cautious about how we make these interpretations and we slowly build up and increment our understanding. But we do have a reasonable picture now of how we think we came to be.
0: Uh, For now, I'm going to celebrate that we're all Africans, and a big thank you uh, to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Every Friday, just after 9:30, right here on Cape Talk.
1: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that's investing 20 billion pounds in R&D over the next two years, the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities.